As we continue on now in our study through this letter from the Apostle James, we come really in just our second session here, going to begin now at verse 9. As we begin at verse 9, we just kind of remind ourselves something unique about the letter of James, among other New Testament books, is that it is written more like some of the Old Testament wisdom literature, for example, more like the book of Proverbs than some of the other uh, New Testament letters. So while there is in general a theme and major themes throughout the letter of James, it does have a way of sort of skipping around from topic to topic uh, a little bit more like the book of Proverbs. So when we come to verse 9, we do see a logical link with what has gone before. Verses 9, 10, and 11 speak of the kind of encouragement that those who are in the midst of trials need. You see, in the first session, we saw how uh, James gave a greeting, and then he encouraged believers who were going under trials, uh, people in times of pressure, times of testing, times of uh, trouble, telling them to count it all joy because God would accomplish a good purpose if they would persevere through their difficulty in faith. Then we saw, following after that, uh, James instructed us in how to pray for wisdom that it's a good thing for us to pray to God for wisdom and how we should pray to God for wisdom, full of faith when we pray. Now, here you could say he's sort of giving us encouragement in the midst of some kind of difficulty, problem, trial, whatever you would want to call it. Here, starting at verse 9, we read, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field will pass away, uh, excuse me, as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. We well, hear we have both a combination of encouragement to the lowly brother. You saw that in verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And we have a warning to the brother, or of course sister, uh, to the brother who has a higher status, one who have, may, have more um, wealth, more influence, more of a place in this world. So the lowly should rejoice when they are lifted up by God, either in this life or the promise of that in the life to come. So it is also appropriate, although we'll have to say it's far more difficult, for the high brother or sister, the rich, at its term there in verse 9, to rejoice when they're brought low in humiliation by trials or problems or difficulties. Um, I, I like what uh, Lenski said in his commentary, and this is actually quoted by D. Edmund Hebert. He said, quote, As the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, the two are equals. Now, we can understand that the relative poverty or riches that someone may experience, these are trials or tests of a living Christian faith that a Christian may have to deal with. Um, we understand there's sort of somewhat of a shift of subject here. As I said before, it's a little bit like the book of Proverbs. But we see the continuation of the thought here. Take it as a challenge. If you're low in the present moment, take comfort in the fact that God will lift you up. 
If you're high in the present moment, then realize that it's all temporary and not eternal. I mean, did you notice what it says right there in verse 10? Check this out, verse 10. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. You see, trials, problems, difficulties serve to remind the rich and the high in this world that even though they are comfortable in this life, it is still only this life. And this life fades. It fades as the grass grows brown. It fades as the flowers that are beautiful today wither in a few days. You know, in the land of Israel, there's a lot of different kinds of beautiful flowers that spring to life when those spring or fall rains come, but they only last for a short time. On the scale of eternity, that's how temporary the riches of the present age are. That's why he says in verse 11, the rich man will also fade in his pursuits. Now, I want you to notice something here. The riches of this world will certainly fade away, but that's not exactly what James says. If you look at verse 11, he says, the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. You see, your identity as rich or poor, you're not going to carry that over into the world beyond. I'm not trying to say for a moment that uh, rich or poor are either included or automatically excluded from heaven. That's not the point. Uh, We see in the Bible many poor people who are godly, and we see many rich people who are godly. We see poor people who are ungodly. We see rich people who are ungodly. That's not the idea here. The idea is simply this, is that if you are relatively wealthy in this present age, praise the Lord, use those resources in a way that honor God, that that, that do good for his kingdom. But please remember this, you're not going to carry those riches into the world beyond. If you put your life and your identity into the things that fade away, then you also will fade away. How much better it is for us to put our life, our identity into the things that will never fade. If you are only rich in the things of this world, you are going to leave your riches behind when you pass from this world to the next. But if you are rich in heaven, If you are rich before God because of the wise generosity with which you have used the resources God has given you, then you're not leaving behind your riches. You're going to your riches when you pass from this world to the next. So what a great warning this is. Uh, The lowly brother should not feel cursed by his loneliness. There's exaltation. The rich brother should not see his identity in his wealth. Rather, use it. Use it in a godly way. Now, James is going to have a lot more to say about rich and poor in this letter, and so we'll look forward to seeing it. But I do just want you to be reminded of this simple idea. And the simple idea is this, is that uh, he's connecting seemingly, I believe, to a thought that applies to the word of God in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 is one of my favorite verses. It's somewhat of a theme verse for the work I have in what we call enduring word the work that I have in creating and making available for free Bible commentary uh, on the internet and in other ways. And this is the verse. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I love that verse. And the passing uh, uh, nature of wealth and 
uh, things of this world just reminds us to put our stock in eternal things because the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, now on to verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, you know what I like about this verse? Is it reminds me of one of Jesus's beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that passage? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This sounds like almost a lost beatitude of Jesus. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, it reminds us, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus did not tell us the only ways to be blessed. There's more ways to be blessed as well. And one of those other ways is to endure under temptation. Now, notice it doesn't say, blessed is the man, or of course, woman. Blessed is the man who is never tempted. Nor does it say, blessed is the man who finds all temptation easy to conquer. Instead, the promise of blessedness is given to the one who endures temptation. There is a special blessing from God, a special gift of blessedness from God to the one who can say no to temptation, who can say yes to God, and who can endure in saying no. Uh, Look, I'll just let you know, I'm sure my experience is the same as much as you. We find it difficult to endure under temptation. Temptation for a moment, temptation for a season, all right, not so bad, not so difficult, we can deal with it. But temptation that I have to endure over a season, that can be a greater challenge. But there is a blessing for me, for you, when we do this. We, we shouldn't see it as being useless or fruitless or vain to just kind of say, well, I'm going to hang in there and do what's right and who knows why. No, there is blessing in it for me and for you. And part of the blessing, look at it here in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. This states some of God's purpose in allowing temptation. The purpose is to approve us that through the testing, we would be revealed to be people of a genuine and a strong faith. So, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, what James is trying to remind us of is that it really is worth it to persevere under temptation. Our steadfastness, our endurance, even though at the moment it may not seem pleasant, even though at the moment it may seem painful to endure through temptation, it will be rewarded. God will reward us, and he will recognize us as those who love him. Now, again, I love that idea. Enduring temptation is a demonstration of my love for Jesus Christ. The crown of life, which the Lord has promised, to those who love him in connection with enduring temptation. And matter of fact, my love for Jesus can be a motive for resisting temptation. Sometimes it makes no other sense. Sometimes giving into temptation seems easy enough 
free enough, um, cost free enough for me to do it. But then I remember, if I love God, I don't want to offend him. You see, the passions of sinful temptation ultimately can only be overcome by a greater passion. And what I want to do in my life, and I'm sure you want it to happen in your life as well, is I want my love for God to be a greater and greater passion in my life, to have a passion for the honor and the glory of the God I love. Look, let's face it. There's some of us who resist temptation primarily out of the fear of man. The thief suddenly becomes honest when he sees a policeman. Now, it's not like anything has happened on the inside of the thief. It's purely external. Uh, the, the man or woman um, controls their sexual lusts because they couldn't bear to be found out in some kind of sexual sin and thereby be embarrassed. Other people resist the temptation to one sin um, because of the power of another sin. Uh, let me put it this way. The greedy miser gives up partying because he doesn't want to waste his money on drugs and booze. Now, again, his motivation for doing it is greed. That's a sin in itself. And so sometimes we can have bad motivations, I should say, for resisting sin. Now, ultimately, you can say, look, it's better for the thief not to steal, even if it's just because of the policeman. It's better for the person to not give in to sexual sin, even if they're mainly concerned about scandal. I get that, and there's truth in that. But we have to agree, the highest, the best motive for resisting temptation is to love him. To love God with a greater power and a greater passion than our love for sin. And might I say that this is something that needs to become a bit of a focus for us. What I mean by that is simply this, is that there are many people who are troubled by temptation. They feel the battle. They feel the shame of giving in to their sin. And they begin to focus a great deal upon resisting temptation. I got to resist. I got to resist. I got to resist. I can't give in. I can't give in. I can't give in. And that's kind of their attitude. And they're more focused on the temptation and their resistance of the temptation. Listen, sometimes what that brother or sister most needs to do is simply this. They need to put their focus on God and on loving him. Instead of focusing on yourself and your own reaction to whatever temptation you might be feeling, put your focus upon the Lord himself. And what a change you'll see you'll see the power of a greater love, that is our love for God, overmastering the power of a lesser love, that is the love we may have for the sinful and deceptive and passing things of this world. Now, James is going to continue to give us wisdoms in verse 13, instructing us on how temptation comes and how temptation works. Ready for this? Here, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And notice this, James is teaching us something about the nature of temptation, how it works. And the first thing he wants us to know is temptation in and of itself, that is 
the enticement to evil does not come from God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Temptation does not come from God. Though God allows it, he does not himself entice us to evil. Though God may test our faith without an enticement or solicitation to evil. It says very plainly right there in verse 13, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, there is a little bit of a difficulty because in the vocabulary of the New Testament, the word for a test and the word for a temptation can be the same word, but we need context to distribute it. It's true, God may test a person, but God does not tempt a person in the sense of enticing them to do something evil. You see, James knew that most people have an evil tendency to blame God when they find themselves um, succumbing to temptation. Yet by his very nature, God is unable either to be tempted in the same way that we're tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. I like what the old Puritan commentator, Matthew Poole, had to say about this. Here's what he says, quote, He shows the great cause of sin that lust has a greater hand in it than either the devil or his instruments, who cannot make us sin without ourselves. They sometimes tempt and do not prevail. In other words, James exposes the fact that not only is it true that temptation, that is, enticement to evil, does not come from God, but in the most part, it comes from me. We're not trying to say that the world has no part in it. We're not trying to say that the devil has no part in it. But the real problem is me. Now, this idea of God's role, God's place in the matter of temptation, we do understand that God sometimes allows great tests to come upon his people. Even some of those people that when we turn through the pages of the Bible, they look like they're some of God's favorites. We think of the hard command that God gave to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, we, we do take pains to point out that ultimately God did not want Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God made that abundantly clear. But at least in, in, in the initial sense, God gave that command. We think of the great affliction that God allowed to come upon Job and to test Job. That's in Job chapters 1 and 2 and throughout the whole book. Other times, God may send a test as a form of judgment upon those who reject him. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 22, God sent a spirit of deception upon a wicked king. Um, God sent an evil spirit upon the wicked king Saul when Saul was in full-blown rejection of God. Yet in neither of those cases, nor anywhere in the scriptures, do we find that God entices or attempts to seduce a person to do evil. Instead, where does temptation come from? Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. God does not tempt us. Instead, we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own fleshly desires and enticed. The, the world provides enticement. The flesh provides enticement. The devil provides enticement. 
But the main thing in mind here is our flesh. We are drawn away by our own desires. Drawn away. Kind of has the idea of how bait on a hook, I'm speaking in the metaphor of fishing, bait on a fishing hook can draw away the fish to take the bait. Now, of course, the, the fish isn't after the hook. The fish is after the bait, but the bait hides the hook. Some people also think there's the idea here of something that's used in the book of Proverbs many times, the idea of the immoral woman, the prostitute, drawing away the young, naive man out of the right way and alluring him with the bait of pleasure to commit sin with the prostitute. So again, we have all these ideas. Now, Satan certainly tempts us. But the reason why temptation is appealing to me is because of something in my fallen nature. You don't tempt me with the uh, enticement to eat something that I don't like. I'm trying to think, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank of something I don't like uh, to eat. Look, I'm not big on beets. Pickled beets, not my thing. I know some people love them. Pickled beets, no, not for me. You're not going to tempt me with even the best prepared dish of pickled beets. It's just, I'm just not into it. But you, you entice me with a serving of Rocky Road ice cream. I'm into that. I love that. So there has to be something in me, in my nature, that draws me. Even Satan could put before me the best dish of pickled beets, and there's going to be no enticement in it for me because there's nothing in me that responds to that. But... There's something in my sinful nature that can respond to an enticement from Satan, an enticement from the flesh. You see, sometimes we give Satan too much credit for his tempting powers. We fail to recognize that we are drawn away by our own desires. Now, I don't have any doubt whatsoever that the devil and his agents, sometimes we use that term, the devil, as shorthand for the demonic powers that are under Satan's direction. So we're using a little bit of theological shorthand when we say the devil. Now, please understand that we know that the devil is smart and that he observes us all the time and that he knows what my hot buttons are. He knows what might entice me. So he knows how to put brilliantly calculated temptations in front of me. But still... I only respond to it because there's something in me that does respond to it. Now, understand, there are some people who like to emphasize the sovereignty of God. And believe me, the sovereignty of God is a truth of Scripture and something we need to understand, and we're not afraid of that. And they want to emphasize the fact that God is responsible for all things, yet God is never responsible for man's sin. I like what John Calvin wrote about this text. This is what John Calvin wrote. He says, When Scripture ascribes blindness or hardness of heart to God, it does not assign to him the beginning of the blindness, nor does it make him the author of sin so as to ascribe to him the blame. Calvin also wrote this, quote, Scripture asserts that the reprobate are delivered up to depraved lusts, but is it because the Lord depraves or corrupts their hearts? 
by no means for their hearts are subjected to depraved lusts because they are already corrupt and vicious now again john calvin himself understood that it's not god that makes a man or woman sinful that this comes from the depravity of their own fallen nature but the consequences of us going after temptation are severe Again, if we want to start back at verse 13, he says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Thus, now it's verse 15, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, springing forth from corrupt desire is sin. And springing forth from sin is death. You see, oftentimes I looked at the corrupt desires in my life, and I don't take them all that seriously. Well, yeah, you know, I have this corrupt desire, but whatever. As long as I don't act on it. Listen, I need to look at that corrupt desire in my own life, and I need to challenge it. I need to bring it under subjection to Jesus Christ. I can't just say, well, the desire's there. What's the big deal? Because desire often leads to sin, and sin leads to death. That is the inevitable progression of sin that Satan always tries to hide from us, but we should never be deceived about it. What I'm just trying to say, we can't view sinful desires within us as being completely morally neutral. We have to take them seriously, and we have to say, Lord, as I walk with you, as I grow in you, as I undergo this day-by-day -day process of Christian, well, to use a religious word, sanctification, Christian growth, as I undergo this, Lord God, please transform my desires to make them more holy. Please transform my desires to make them more pleasing to you. Why? Because... Do not be deceived. Verse 16, my beloved brethren, listen, we can so easily deceive ourselves about the nature of sin. We can so easily tell ourselves, tell others, I think it's something especially we say to ourselves, that sin isn't as bad as it seems. And Satan's great strategy, the world's great strategy, the great strategy of my sinful flesh is to convince me that the pursuit of my sinful desires has something good in it, that somehow it can produce life or flourishing or goodness for myself. But no, sin only separates me from God. The world does not have an interest in my human flourishing unto God. Satan only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, according to John chapter 10, verse 10. And when I keep this in mind, I can more effectively resist temptation. So I need to be real about myself. Listen, when I'm drawn away to sin, it's because there's something corrupt in me. God, would you deal with that corruption within me? And I have to be real about the inevitable progress of sin. Desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. Sin conceives, it gives birth to death. I don't want that train of desire, sin, and death. Therefore, I try to get off that train at the point of desire. 
and I challenge my sinful desires. I don't indulge them. I don't humor them. I say, no, I desire this, but it's sinful. Lord, would you please forgive me this desire and change this desire within me? Now, in speaking about this sort of wellspring of potential human corruption, that's my own sinful flesh, now he's going to talk in verses 17 and 18 about God's goodness and how it stands in contrast. You see, look, we have these classic enemies of the Christian faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have to deal with all three of them. And if I had to rank those biblically, I would say, biblically, most attention is given to the flesh in the battle we face there. Second, and again, important, sometimes neglected, is the attack and the uh, nature of the attack that even the believer faces against the devil in the Christian life and in holiness. But then also there's the pressure from the world around us that we have to resist. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they do their thing, but God is greater than all. Look at verses 17 and 18 where we read, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I love that verse, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Is there anything good in your life? Listen, whether you see it or not, that good thing is directly or indirectly a gift from God. Let's say you enjoy something good. I don't know. I'll just start. Let's say you have a nice car and, and you are able to pay for that nice car or you have paid for it. It's better if you're not in debt and you already have paid for it. But let's say you pay for that nice car because of a job that you have and you work hard at. And, and it would be easy or possible for you to think, well, listen, I, I should thank myself for this car. I've worked very hard to earn the money to pay for this car. And, and I'm grateful that, that, listen, who gave you the ability to work? Who, who got you the job? Who gives you the ability not only to get the job, but to persist in the work? Who blesses your finances so that it's not all being sucked away by something else? Even if you drive a car that you enjoy and you pay for it the money that you earn yourself, even directly or indirectly, that is a gift from the Father above, and you should be grateful for it. You see, we don't expect any goodness from our own fallen natures. We don't expect any goodness from the devil or from the world that would uh, entice us to sin. But every good and perfect gift comes from the Father in heaven. Now, with that, verse 17 says, there is no variation or shadow of turning. What that means is simply this. God's goodness is constant. There is no variation with him. Instead of shadows, God is the Father of lights. Isn't that a beautiful title for God? The Father of Lights. You know, we just kind of instinctively recognize that there's something good about light. Oh, I'm not saying that the night is evil and we have to fear the night or anything like that. But there's just something wonderful about the morning sun, the way that light comes into this world. And God is the Father of Lights. Now, one of my favorite commentators on this letter to James, D. Edmund Hebert. Hebert says that the ancient Greek here should actually be translated the father of the lights. And the idea 
is that the specific lights, according to Hebert, are the celestial bodies that light up the sky both day and night. The sun, the moon, and the stars never stop giving light. Okay, look, we understand the moon has an indirect light, but you know what I mean. The sun and the stars never stop giving light even when we can't see them. Even so, there is no shadow with God. When the night comes, the darkness is not the fault of the sun. The sun is shining just as brightly as ever when the night comes, but the earth has turned away from the sun. Even so, listen, if you feel like you're in the shade, if you feel like you're in the shadow of God's light, it's not because God has turned from you. It's because you've turned from him. This is just another way of saying this phrase in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's another way of saying that God never changes. The fancy theological word we would put to that is the immutability of God, that God never mutates, he never changes. Now, there are some more modern theologians that have taught that God does change. Sometimes this is taught in sort of something that was taught a few years ago called process theology. The idea is that God is maturing, God is growing, God is in process himself. No, the Bible says that there is no variation, there is no shadow of turning with God. He is unchanging. And this unchanging, wonderful, always bright with light God, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You see, James understood that the gift of salvation was given by God. It was not earned by the work or the obedience of man. It's of his own will that he brought us forth for salvation. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? God desired for us to come forward to salvation. Why? Verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We can see the goodness of God in our salvation. He initiated our salvation of his own will. He brought us forth to spiritual life by his word of truth. Why? That we might be to his glory as a first fruits of the harvest. Now, notice this difference. In the previous verses, James told us what the lust, what the sinful desires of men and women bring forth. What was it? Desire brings forth sin. Sin brings forth death. But what does the will of God bring forth? He brings forth salvation. And that salvation is something like a rich harvest, a first fruits of his creatures. Now, what does he mean when he talks about the first fruits there in verse 18? I wonder, since James was very much writing to that first generation of Christians at a time when the church was still mostly all Jewish in its character, there had not yet come into the church substantial numbers of believers from a Gentile background. I wonder when he refers to the first fruits, if he's referring to that initial generation of Jewish Christians in the early church. The fact that these Christians from a Jewish background was a first fruits. Now, again, he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, where it speaks about the offering of the first fruits. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice of the first fruits, and the sacrifice of the first fruits was always intended to say, there's more to come. I'm going to give God the very first of the harvest, 
trusting that he'll bring the rest of the harvest. And if James understood that he, the Jewish Christians of his own day, were kind of a first fruits, it means that James understood a greater harvest to come. This may be knowingly or unknowing when James wrote it, an anticipation of a great harvest of Gentile believers to come, of which those initial Jewish believers were a beautiful first fruits. Now, it's a wonderful thing to think about that, that when God does a work, he often sends something of a first fruits. Listen, when we see God working, even in a small way, one of the prayers I like to pray is, Lord, let this be a first fruits of a much greater harvest that you're doing. If God's doing some good things in your life right now, well, thank the Lord for it. Let me tell you, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Take joy in that. Take peace in that. It's a wonderful thing just to realize that God sends forth his good and perfect gifts. Enjoy those things, but realize, pray it in that whatever good God is doing in your life, especially whatever good he's doing in your life spiritually right now, pray that it would be a first fruits of a much greater harvest to come. Well, what a thing we've seen in these verses here from uh, James chapter one. We've seen really the nature of temptation and the nature of a good and perfect God. And may that good and perfect God enable us to understand, to prepare, and to grow through the difficulties of temptation, that we wouldn't give in to the desire to sin, that it wouldn't turn into sin itself, and that sin would not lead forth to death and the loss of our life with God, any kind of separation from God. Rather, may we grow in our relationship with the wonderful Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. That's it for now. We'll pick it up starting at verse 19 in our next study through the book of James. I hope you can join us for that as well.